Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Shackman. The world of journalism faces an existential crisis today. Attacks on the press as the enemy of the people by the President of the United States and other authoritarian leaders is just the beginning. Bombs sent to CNN, reporters spat on at political rallies, and the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi make the prima facie case. My guest today, award-winning international journalist and foreign policy analyst Rula Jabral, comes to this discussion with a unique perspective. Having covered stories and worked in Italy, the U.S., and the Middle East, she sees the global dimensions of the issues. Perhaps most significantly, she secretly conducted one of the last interviews with Jamal Khashoggi. In that interview, Khashoggi talks about what it might take for the U.S. to actually look objectively at Saudi Arabia. But this would only happen, he believed, in the face of a serious crisis. Little did he know that his brutal murder would be that crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome Rula Jabral to the program. Rula, thanks for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you for having me. Talk a little bit, first of all, about your attitude, your perceptions of the reality of journalism today in light of the events of the past several weeks. I would say the past several years, if I may, um, there's an assault on the truth. And since uh, the rise of these populist, uh, nationalistic, xenophobic movements across the globe who aspire to bring authoritarian reality and uh, a liberal democracy to the Western world, they've been uh, seeing as enemy. Uh, as the only uh, people stopping them from reaching their goals are journalists who are exposing their corruption, their wrongdoings, are exposing their lies, deflections, manipulation of the media. So for them, uh, this is the enemy. And I will never forget Steve Bannon's words when he said, the real opposition are not the Democrats. The real opposition is the press. And from that moment on, we start seeing an escalation on violent verbal attacks. And I had no doubt then that it would lead to murder. It would lead to bombs, as we've seen yesterday in New York and across the country. But also, it will embolden authoritarian leaders to start liquidating and murdering critics, activists, and journalists. I think Jamal... Khashoggi, who was a very mild critic of the Saudi regime, never thought in his wildest nightmares that he would be murdered in an embassy, in a conflict on foreign soil, and he would be chopped in pieces simply because he dared to do his job. So we are in dark, dark moments. This is an assault on democracy. One of the aspects that's, that's most shocking in reading your interview with Jamal Khashoggi is what a mild critic he was, how kind of understanding he was of the realities that particularly uh, the Saudi regime faced. He really rooted for his country to thrive and succeed. His attitude was, it's better to have pluralism and different of opinion, uh, and push the prime minister, uh, push the crown prince to reform in a way that is uh, inclusive, uh, modernity, inclusive of women, and at the center of his 
every piece was a call for freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of opinion. He really worked for, actually, the regime. He was an advisor for the, for the royal family for so many years. And the attitude of this crown prince is a typical attitude of the mafia organization. Um, so for them, if, you, if the mafia feels that somebody is a, a member of their organization, betrayed them, usually they would, they would kill them and, and chop their heads. And this is worse than ISIS. What the crown prince did is by far worse than ISIS. Because what he did is he sent uh, 15 killers. He sent uh, a forensic doctor with, a, with an order to chop this person in pieces and send a signal to everybody else that if you ever dare to even, uh, not even criticize the, the, the crown prince, even advise the crown prince, because Jamal wanted to be one of the advisors. He didn't want to be on the opposition. He wanted to be part of the conversation that would get this crown prince to succeed and to thrive. And, but I believe the worst part of the story is the cover-up. The cover-up that they immediately, the lies, the deflections, and the fact that the President of the United States himself start talking about weapons and uh, the billions of dollars that they are getting from Saudi Arabia. We're sending a signal that we value money above human lives and above principles and values. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous precedent. One of the things that Khashoggi says in his interview with you is that he specifically says he doesn't see himself as, a, as the opposition, that he was really looking exactly. for a better Saudi Arabia, and that he was certainly not calling for the overthrow of the regime. Absolutely not. He was, he's a monarchic. He believed in his country, but he wanted a different Saudi Arabia. He wanted a better Saudi Arabia. He even wrote in the Washington Post, we deserve better. And he also saw that the problem with the Saudi crown prince, uh, the fact that the rest of the world was blind to what he was doing, uh, to, to the fact that they didn't care about the crown prince bombing to oblivion another neighboring country, Yemen, to the fact that he was arresting and torturing and murdering critics, activists, journalists, and, and uh, shaking down his own family for money. Uh, he felt that there was a very uh, dangerous relationship uh, and an addiction to Saudi oil and to addiction to the fact that the Saudis are buying weapons and buying apartments from Trump, the Trump organization. And he felt that the problem with Saudi Arabia, that the Saudi royal family thought that they can get away with anything because they are paying the rest of the world. Uh, I think the Saudi are waking up to realize that some regimes and some leaders might accept their uh, barbaric behaviors, but the rest of the world doesn't. This is where Jamal's words are relevant. Because when I asked him, what, what is the hope for the Saudi people to be protected? And he said, our only hope is the international community. Because the checks and balance must be imposed on this royal family. Otherwise, Jamal's murder will be only the beginning of a series of murders. Was he fearful for his life? Yes. He always feared for his life. He understood that they wanted to shut down and silence and intimidate the opposition. Many of Jamal Khashoggi's friends are rotting in jails and dungeons in Saudi Arabia for a tweet, simply for a tweet. Um, you can be arrested and end up in jail for 10 years because you are tweeting the wrong things. 
this is the kind of authoritarian police state that Hamad bin Salman is running. It's a mafia state. It's, it's a, an Islamic ISIS-type state. That's the kind of state he's running. So when our foreign leaders go and endorse and shake hands with this man, they have to know that they are shaking a hand with a murderer, with somebody that carry these kind of barbaric attacks against his civil society. How did Khashoggi see the role of the U.S. today in relation to Saudi Arabia? Jamal was very worried about President Trump's attack on the media. When President Trump was calling us enemy of the people, when President Trump, it was clear that he loved dictators and he hated journalists. And he thought this will inspire all these autocrats, all of these tyrants and dictators to to think that their enemy is journalists and they can murder us and they can arrest them and they can torture them. And he was concerned because he understood the role that America has in inspiring in one way or another, negatively or positively, the rest of the world. Look, when Hamad bin Salman, the crown prince, said uh, that Jared Kushner was in his pocket, when he said that what matters is his direct relationship with uh, Trump uh, family. He was talking as a crown prince. In his mind, that is America's ruling family. He does not understand that America is, has very strong institutions, very strong. Uh, uh, it has enshrined in the First Amendment the free, free speech and the protection of journalists. Clearly, he thought the crown prince, he could get away with murder, and even President Trump, who came out thinking, oh, my God, I can, he can deflect and cover up for them, realized the limits of his power in that. Jamal had faith in President Macron and Angela Merkel, the lead, who he called them the leader of the free world. And he said, and these are his own words, after the crown prince kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon, Hariri, in March, uh, and then he was forced to release him because he was pressured by President Macron of France. So I asked Jamal, I said, well, after the pressure from the international community, he can back off. And he said, yes, that's our only hope. That's the only hope for us to be protected and safe and to apply some kind of checks and balance on this authoritarian tyrant. Given how relatively mild and measured and nuanced his criticism was of the Saudi regime, including what was going on in Yemen. I was, I was shocked to see in, in his interview with you that he was even somewhat understanding about the reality of what was going on in Yemen, that he would be targeted. Talk about that. Look, uh, it, this is really, and it, it gives you an idea of who this crown prince is, how his, his mindset, how he, he cannot tolerate anything except, I love you, crown prince, uh, and, and, and yes, crown prince. And he surrounded himself with yes men. So somebody like Jamal that can, I'm not saying endorse, but can understand policy, his policies, the crown prince policies in Yemen, but doesn't understand them elsewhere, he, doesn't, he will never forgive somebody for not subscribing totally, capitulating totally to his views and to his rule. And he would view anybody with suspicion, anybody that would challenge his 
his views, would criticize his policies. He wants to live like his grandfather as a tribal leader of the 14th century, but he wants to be celebrated by, in Silicon Valley and in Hollywood as a reformer. You cannot have it both ways. Either you are a real reformer or you are a murderer. And in this moment, he chose to be a murderer. The fact of him wanting to have it both ways and the fact that Jamal called him out on that and was really one of the strongest points that he makes repeatedly in, in his interview with you, to what extent do you think that really goes to the heart of attacking MBS? I think that's central, and that's a great question, because uh, he really thought after his tour in the West in March, where people were praising him constantly uh, in the New York Times, in the Atlantic, a 60-minute interview, he really thought he had the West, not only Jared Kushner, in his pocket, that he, uh, he managed to shape the public opinion regarding who he is. Uh, really, that emboldened him, because if you notice, between March and September, he escalated his attacks on critics, dissidents, journalists, uh, lawyers. Then he did that huge, huge bombing of Yemen, where he murdered 40 children in a school bus. That was in August. So he really thought... The West doesn't care about human rights. The West doesn't care, especially America, doesn't care about legality, morality, and, and uh, uh, pragmatism. And the West doesn't care about international law. They care about money. And he really thought he could get away with murder. So he planned the whole thing with Jamal. He was testing the water with Yemen. He was testing the water with Saad Hariri, the prime minister he kidnapped. He was testing the water with his cousin who he tortured and kidnapped and, and kept hostage in the Ritz-Carlton and stole their money. Then, when the world was silent, he thought he could escalate and do even more, which he did. Jamal was simply another, um, another uh, action, another uh, murder that he thought he could get away with. And he was, I'm sure he's shocked now to see this reaction. He did, doesn't understand that the world that was silent on Yemen because they might thought that in Yemen somehow it's far away from us, we cannot see what's going on. But Jamal, we all knew, he's a journalist of the Washington Post. He's somebody that is a permanent resident of the United States. But not only that, Jamal is the most respected, honored uh, and celebrated journalist between East, that lived between East and West. Everybody knew Jamal. Jamal was the kindest, the most humble human being who really, truly loved his country. He was not a rebel, uh, an Iranian rebel in, in uh, Yemen, in Sana'a. He was not the prime minister of Lebanon that y you shouldn't kidnap prime minister, but people were suspicious about what the truth was because it was never confirmed totally. But... When it came to Jamal and the way it was done, not only the murder, the murder in that manner. I mean, talking to the Turkish authority, Jamal was killed and start, they start chopping him when he was still alive. He was alive when they start cutting his body in pieces. The barbarity of that. And where is that? Inside a consulate. Inside, and they, they found pieces probably of his body 
inside the council general house. Who does that? Only a mafia, only somebody that has a mafia mindset. Given how planned this was, 15 guys that that flew there and that were part of this, why was, in your view, the cover-up so bungled? Because they are stupid. (laughs) And, again, they did not... I think it was premeditated murder. I have no doubt about that. You don't send 15 guys, somebody, a forensic doctor, you don't, with a bone saw. You don't send uh, these people and two private jets and all of that. But again, the Saudis are, they need to catch up with the 21st century technology. They have no clue how to deal with that. Uh, I will go back to Jamal's word, words. He said, the crown prince wants to govern like his grandfather. He is governing like his grandfather. Except now there's video cameras. Now every consulate is bugged. We know what happened. And now they are catching up with, with modernity. Uh, so they did not expect the Turks to be adamant about wanting the truth. They did not expect the international community to be horrified this way. They did not also expect something else. They did not expect that we, his colleagues, journalists, they thought we will be all scared. We will back down. We will not be afraid of these thugs. Uh, I am so proud of all of you in America and across the world who, despite these terrorist attacks, the bombs being sent to CNN and elsewhere, we are still reporting. We are still talking. And we will not be intimidated. He did not. He really underestimated our reactions. And this is where he was wrong. So they start the cover-up story with lies after lies, saying he left the embassy. There's no proof of that. Then the second lie that uh, there was a moment where they said that um, it was uh, uh, some kind of rogue operation. You don't send your bodyguards, your personal bodyguards, who are in charge of your personal security, your personal security details, those guys who are very close to you, to do that. Plus, there was a Skype. Uh, somebody, his advisor, Al-Qahtani, Saud Al-Qahtani, his personal advisor to the crown prince, ap- apparently was Skyped in live while they were cutting Jamal's head. And he supposedly said, bring me the dog head. Bring me this dog head. So we have evidence, because the Turks are very clear about this. Now we know that Gina Haspel, the head of CIA, is there. She's seen those evidence, and I cannot wait for a Congress hearing so she could reveal what she saw and what she heard. Because we need to know the truth. We demand justice for Jamal. And also because, if, as again, if there will be no justice and accountability, Jamal will be next somebody else. He will carry on killing journalists because he thinks he can. Talk about that last interview that you had with Jamal. Look, uh, I, Jamal, i known Jamal for a while. He's a friend. And I was doing this cover story for Newsweek, um, trying to expose the crown prince. Uh, Nancy, Nancy Cooper, my editor-in-chief, called me and she wanted to write a story that the true story of Hamad bin Salman, not uh, uh, a puffed piece about how great he is, but the reality. Uh, I accepted, and I start interviewing many people. I interviewed at least 60 people for this cover story. 
Yemenis, Iraqis. I interviewed a lot of Saudis inside Saudi Arabia and outside Saudi Arabia. And then it was time to interview Jamal, who was the most prominent journalist, Saudi journalist abroad. And we start the recording, and he was concerned. Uh, he saw the fact that this crown prince was not listening to anybody. He believed only in himself. But also he saw uh, how America was enabling him and emboldening him, especially this uh, administration. But then he saw something else. He saw that he, uh, they were trying to lure him in. He never trusted the Saudi. They were trying to lure him lure him in by sending people very close to him to tell him that he can go back to the country, that nothing will ever happen to him. He never trusted that. But I think he went in a consulate because he thought that there's some kind of uh, limit to what this crown prince can do. I never published any piece of that because I really feared for his life. He feared for his life, but I did too. And I decided not to put any of those words in the first cover story that we did for Newsweek in September. I never thought that I will have to use these words after his death. And it kills me. It kills me that. But I had no other choice because I thought that we, if we want justice for Jamal, if we want to hold accountable his murderers, his voice from the grave should speak. And they will never intimidate us to stop speaking. So I reached out to Newsweek. I told them I have this um, an hour and a half interview, some of it in Arabic, other in English. And they were very kind, and they immediately did another cover story. And it's his last words about the crown prince, about America, and about Islam. Rula Jabral, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the work you are doing. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.